the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Ahem, ahem. All right, you guys, it's Morgan Zeggers. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we're doing a little update on the nonprofit that I'm a part of. Sometimes I forget that you guys don't know that I do that. Um, it's kind of funny because that's that was my goal for quite some time was to work to build it so that it wasn't just something that I did as a passion project. It still is a passion project, but I kind of wanted it to be a thing, an entity that that wasn't just Morgan's project. It was something that stood up on its own and then I would be involved in it in some way. And so it's kind of funny now to see people that don't realize that I'm even connected to it. It's like, oh, maybe I went a little too far. <laughs> uh, but that being said, I started a nonprofit called Young Americans Against Socialism about mm, two and a half years ago at this point. And, uh, well, there's a lot of things I could say, but why does it exist? Well, because we have a very strong group in the nation founded by people that say this crap. We, uh, are trained Marxists. Now that being said, let's get into the podcast. So uh, some people enjoy laughing at me because they have no idea my actual thoughts on all of the actual, you know, behind the scenes of the nonprofit. Um, I, I really just was kind of coy with the name. It was just kind of simple. It, at the time, it was, again, a passion project, like a Facebook page, and now it's like a full-blown C3. Uh, but I just thought it was funny that older people would meet me and be like, wait, you're a good millennial? You're a good young person against socialism? I didn't know you existed out there. And so I was like, yeah, there's actually a lot of us. Um, so what do you know? I very literally late, literally named it Young Americans Against Socialism. And now it's like a full-fledged nonprofit, which is super fun. Um, so that being said, over the last two and a half years, it was pretty much just me grinding away. And I really appreciate all the help that we've gotten so far. We We used to, you know, just have the the unpaid volunteers and then the interns and then people would get a little bit of money for the projects that they did or they would get a little bit hourly or whatever it is. But like now we have a straight up team and uh, Grace leads production. Allie just kills it in all the all the departments, basically. Um, she needs a cooler title. I've got to talk to her about that. But needless to say, we're going to Dallas this week and I'm super excited. So I wanted to dedicate a podcast to why the heck we're going to Dallas. We have our first big production in a long time. Um, like I was saying, we started out kind of sporadically. So we would do maybe like a, a five to seven minute interview with a survivor from a socialist country. And, and then we posted on social media and we would have some marketing campaign around it where we would get influencers to share it and then it would go viral. And then we'd be like, we got 25 million views on our video. And I, I think that's super fun. I think that's super great. But in the big picture, I think it's really toxic for this, like the political industry that has been created around this to like, uh, tell people, look how many millions of views I got on this video. And this is all I do. I just focus on virality. I just focus on influencer campaigns and stuff like that. I think they definitely have a place with many things, but with the work that I'm doing with the nonprofit, the work that we're doing with 
trying to expand interviewing and, and documenting and archiving people's stories, I wanted us to take a step into a more mature position. And so that's really the transition that we've been working on so hard. And so most of the work is done behind the scenes. We, we don't really post on social media anymore. And that's because we've been trying to get into this place for production where we're going to do this first round of uh, kind of like the first series or what is it called? The first season of the series. So I'm really, really excited about it. We have about, I think, 15 people from communist countries, like full-on communist countries, and then um, some that can kind of just talk about the economic aspect of socialism. A few of them will. But uh, about 15 people so far in season one, and they're all going to be long-form interviewed it will be a podcast, but it's going to be video uh, in a studio out of Dallas. And I don't want to give away too much. I don't want to um, you know, spoil it because it hasn't been released yet or anything. But we've been working really hard to, to find these people and more specifically to make sure that the stories they share tell a specific lesson. There's so many aspects of why we want to do this. If you guys remember... Um, last episode, we talked about peer rationale, peer-to-peer communication. That was the first reason why I thought of interviewing people from socialist and communist countries many years ago, um, almost three now, because I heard from that study from Michigan State University that the most effective way to open up a young person's heart and mind was to actually hear the hard to understand or the opposing viewpoint from a peer, not from a parent or a professor or somebody talking down to you. So we, we would try and find young people that had escaped socialist countries and they could tell their story on a peer level to the young people on social media. And that's really how we got started. Now we're evolving into, okay, not only do we want to utilize the concept of peer rationale and peer-to-peer communication, but we also want to honor these stories because, oh my gosh, they are not being taught in the American classrooms. So I always joke around like in donor meetings, I'm like, we're basically just teaching children and Americans of all ages, actually, what wasn't told to them about the 20th century, about the history of communism in American public school classrooms, uh, we're just filling in that gap. <laughs> it's a pretty simple task when you when you actually realize how little is shared in the American classrooms. So not only do we want to use peer-to-peer communication, not only do we want to just honor their stories and, and have them be heard in the first place, but we also want to document them, archive them, and spread them like wildfire in this era of totalitarian thought control and information censorship. I'm a big believer in the importance of physical books. Uh, I have a budget. I'm going to get a little nerdy, but I have a budget. Every week I buy a new round of of classics, a new round of important documents, the Magna Carta, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. Um, I could go on. And I specifically do it because I know they're all going to live in my homestead library one day, and they will not be burned unless someone shows up at my doorstep and they actually they actually do that. But the, the point is you have to actually physically burn that book or destroy that book to erase the information in it. Whereas on the internet, people just delete things now. Companies erase information. Webster or Merriam-Webster Dictionary changes the definitions of words. The WHO website will change the definition of a word like herd immunity and it's hard for us to keep track of the fact that these things have even been changed. If you look at History Channel, I'm going to do a podcast episode on this one, but if you look at the historychannel.com, history.com, look at what it says about the Boston Massacre. Call it a riot now. They say it was a riot by unruly patriots. 
that tormented and attacked one lone British soldier just trying to do his job. And to see that language, it's hard to under, it's hard to explain right now just off the top of my head, but if you guys went to that website and read it, you would know exactly what I'm talking about of, well, that's not how they used to teach that. <laughs> why, why are they saying that it was a riot now? And why are they making it more about the poor, lone British soldier standing alone? Uh, very, very, very interesting. I want the original copies of everything. Not only with America's founding, not only with core documents from history, but now also I want as many stories as possible documented of the rise of, of terrible, terrible people, of tyrants and authoritarians throughout history. And I want to be able to have that documented for us moving forward. Maybe it is a little selfish, but I want Americans to be able to have them to understand the importance of these things moving forward. So, so that is that next mature step that we're doing it's it's the setting on top of that <laughs> you guys would laugh at this um we transitioned from doing these short videos a while back to then doing more social media kind of content more like selfie videos from survivors and then we did some explainer videos about economics history all this stuff we had phases and then our next phase knowing that we were trying to fundraise and prepare for in-person interviews was, okay, maybe we should start to get more connected and into the habit of doing long-form interviews. So so let's do them on Zoom. So we started interviewing survivors from communist countries on Zoom. And it sounds like a good idea, you know. <laughs> Everybody can do a Zoom podcast these days in the era of COVID. Nobody, nobody's going to worry about that. Uh, big mistake, you guys, because I, <laughs> I work from my apartment. And I actually, when I moved from Texas, got rid of all of my furniture except like my bed. And I just got the heck out of there, came to Arizona. Alex Spencer, my roommate here in Arizona, has a hot pink couch. So really, Alex and I do all of our our news hit and our, our media filming, all of our stuff. We just have a camera set up pointed at our hot pink couch in our bright, airy, naturally lit apartment. And it's super fun if you're a 25-year-old and she's 24, 23 still, I think. Um, but, you know, it works for us on our news hits. The problem is that was all I really had for these intense, long-form interviews. And I had an issue where one of the interviews, it was such a good example of how messed up the situation was I'm interviewing on this, you know, bright hot pink couch and I'm all smiley and, and I've been running this nonprofit for years now and I love doing this. This is my passion. Well, we interviewed someone who had escaped communist China and oh boy, uh, she begins telling her story and you guys, you have to understand it looks like I am looking at her on the camera, right? But in my setup, she, her face is on my laptop screen, which is sitting next to me. I can't look at it. So I just have to stare at a camera and talk to it and hear her voice, but talk staring at the camera um, for an hour at least. And I'm doing that. And I think I'm making a good face, right? I, I think I am, instead of like dead staring awkwardly at the camera, I'm trying to be, you know, active and I'm trying to to show support for her as she's telling her hard story. So she starts saying how she gets brought to the 
the uh, concentration camp, the the camp where they tortured and forced labor worked people uh, in communist China. She's telling this story. She's brought there. She's forced to squat for like eight hours. And then she tells the story of how you're either sleep deprived and then tortured, or you would be brought to the day to do forced labor at the factories where you create products that are then (laughs) sold in America. So it's, it's a horrible story. And she starts crying, and I I think in my head, okay, so my, my body reaction should be to, to help smile and, and show her the support. In my head, it makes sense, right? Well, uh, on camera, it looks super awkward, and it looks like I'm, like, grinning, smiling as she's saying that she was tortured repeatedly over 24 hours. So we post that, and what do you know? It goes viral and it's it gets a lot of good reactions, but also half of the reactions are, who is this liberal snot from CNN interviewing her? Totally ungrateful. She needs to respect her story. Uh, who is this? Like, she needs to respect her elders, and she's got to learn from history in order to have more respect for how, how much torture this went through. This is what's wrong with America's youth. And it's like, oh, these people don't see the full story and now the video is going viral and they think that I'm just some liberal snot that doesn't care about people that escaped communist China because I'm smiling as she's crying. It was a whole mess. And so that was really the spark for me to say, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done trying to do these intense stories over zoom. It's time for us to just make the leap, make the investment. We have the money to do it. Let's begin production of series one. Stop interviewing people on zoom. Um, so that was like the, the catalyst for me to stop. Uh, you know, it's like, we're, we're adults. We've got the money to do it. We've got the budget to do it. What is stopping us now, except for fear that it's not going to work or, or we're too nervous to make that leap into the next step of the maturity of the organization. And so that's when we we got Grace, we brought her on, and she has been producing it. But the whole point and the lessons that we learned along the way have been like, okay, we need this to be a serious setting, no hot pink couch, serious tone in the room. And we we found a perfect studio. I can't wait to show you guys. Like, we're going to do a behind-the-scenes tour of it and stuff, so I don't want to give it away. But, like, moody lighting. This is going to be the perfect environment to honor these stories and to have them documented for people of all ages to watch and learn from. So I'm really, really excited for it. And so the other two aspects of why I really enjoy firsthand testimony and why I want to honor these stories, the first one, you guys, I mean, this is a classic problem. Conservatives and people that believe in individual freedom and liberty and and individual self-reliance away from the government, away from government programs, we're really good when it comes to talking about facts, we're really good because we've got the facts on our side. We've got the stats on our side. We've got the information. We've got the history on our side. But when it comes to communication tactics, oh boy, you guys, the left wins because they make the heartfelt pleas. They, they make things emotional and they have nothing on their side to back it up most of the time. But man, they make a good emotional case and it often wins over people, especially younger people that are driven by their heart, driven by their emotions, and they completely forget all rationale. So when we include emotional stories that also feature facts and statistics and and history being documented, when we add in those sad stories, when we add in those stories of resilience and trials and tribulations and and fighting back against a tyrant or escaping a country and having to leave your family behind in order to just save your children and your wife, 
having to leave your extended family for this new land and go seek that that away from a tyrannical communist dictator that is like trying to put you in political prison that kind of stuff combined with facts it's unbeatable in my opinion it's unbeatable and and that's the kind of feedback that we've gotten so far from so many people that have watched and again i i am getting us away from this habit of having viral videos where you don't exactly know how long people watch you don't exactly know the kind of impact you have but everybody goes down they say i got millions of views i got trillions of views whoever it's just you're throwing crazy numbers out there and you don't truly understand the impact that's why now we're focused on the tactics we're focused on the approach and we're focused on the communication of it and that's how we know if we're going to be effective or not so Again, we're excited for this mature step. That last reason, though, for why I think this is so important right now, and also the other catalyst, not just the hot pink couch crying situation that was horrible, the other catalyst for me has been the shock. I mean, I've been doing this for years now. The shock of how many people over the last year or so who have said, this reminds me of 1984. This is Orwellian. This reminds me of V for Vendetta. Uh, Have you ever thought about how strange it is that we are seeing repeated tactics by the radical left, by socialists and communists that have been tried and attempted and and carried out and then failed two dozen times at least in American history or in world history? This is now over two dozen times tried, failed attempts. And Americans look at it and go, this reminds me of this like fake movie that I saw one time, V for Vendetta. (laughs) Have you ever wondered why that is? It's because we don't properly learn about how the radical left rises to power. We learn about dictators in the 20th century, yes, but we don't learn that those dictators came to power by promising uh, progress and justice for all and calling themselves democratic socialists, saying that they were, quote, progressives. I mean, even Fidel Castro called himself a democratic humanitarian. Can you think of a more opposite word that would might fit him better? I don't know. Yeah, a million different words would fit him better than de- democratic humanitarian. But we don't learn that kind of stuff in the classroom. And then so when we see that same kind of red flag behavior and the red flag language coming from the radical left today in America, first of all, one thing happens, and that's we don't even have red flags go off in our heads. And and that's what happened over the last few years before COVID with the use of the term democratic socialism or with all of this, you know, health care for all and, and ed, uh, college for all and all of these same promises. They've been promised before. They've been said before. And they are all supposed to be red flags for what comes next. But unfortunately, we weren't taught that they were red flags. And now we hear them and no red flags go off in our head because we weren't even taught that they were red flags to begin with. We just completely fall for it. The other thing that happens is now when things start to get really bad, like now we're not just in that, oh, we're going to bring democratic socialism phase. We are full into experiencing force versus choice on American soil. We're experiencing what it's like to have a government tell us and force us to do things. We're experiencing a, a huge and new level of tyrannical government coming from the federal bureaucracy and specifically the Biden administration. And instead of saying, wow, we are now into the next phase of the leftist takeover of America, we should do something about it. Instead, we go, wow, this reminds me of 1984. (laughs) So in my head and what this whole production moving forward is and what my whole nonprofit has really been about is connecting the dots for people about the past to the present to the future. So instead of 
seeing what's going on in America today and saying, wow, that reminds me of a fictional book or fictional movie. My vision, if I could think of a passion I have in life, my vision not only, you know, is to disrupt completely the education system in this country. And I'd love to start a charter school one day, perhaps in my community. It's not something that I must do, but I already planned a homeschool. So I'm like, maybe I could build a little community school for all the kids in my community. That's something that's like, okay, that's a passion of mine. I'd like to achieve that. Another thing that I'd like to achieve if, you know, thinking big picture, wouldn't it be nice if every family in America could survive on one income so that we didn't have to have the broken family structure that we have today? Eh, I'm getting off off track here. But one of the passions when I think about serving in my life is to make sure that when Americans see what's going on these days, they don't say, this reminds me of a fictional book. Instead, they look at something like, uh, I don't know, the bureaucracy shutting down a hair salon for daring to open a week early, or the bureaucracy sending child protective services after the salon owner for opening up her business a week early before the mandates are allowing her to, and, and seeing that use of the bureaucracy weaponized against private business to shut down private business, I hope they look at that situation now and they say, wow, that reminds me of what the Venezuelan socialists did after they were democratically elected into office to seize the means of production, to nationalize private business. What they did in Venezuela was use over-regulation. They made a bunch of random rules, a bunch of random regulations through all of these brand new bureaucratic offices and organizations, and they said, "Uh, hey, you just violated these five new rules that we just made like yesterday. We're going to show up in three days, and if you are not packed up and out of this building because it's now government property and controlled by our party, guess what? You're going to get in, in some big trouble. That's how they seized the means of production. They used the bureaucracy in Venezuela after being democratically elected. Same thing with, oh, so you have the radical left today in America trying to get rid of the Electoral College and the filibuster, pack the courts, and strip a ton of the important security measures in the country that are intended in our government structure to prevent radical change from happening The same party's trying to get rid of those after being democratically elected. They're changing the constitution and our government structure. Oh, that's what they did after being democratically elected in Venezuela as well. What's another example? Cuba. What they did in Cuba, they went from farm to farm and took over private farms, took over private businesses, private property. Uh, the, they, by group, they, they seized the means of these farms. And people make fun of me for this too. They're like, Morgan, do you really think you're going to escape the communists by having your little homestead? You guys, I'm not trying to homestead to avoid a communist takeover. That's not why. I just believe personally in living a quiet, remote life. And I would like to have a completely self-sufficient piece of property for my family to be raised on. And then I'd like to have a little podcast studio on it. So that's my vision of, of what I would like to achieve. No, I don't think I'm going to avoid the communists by making a little remote homestead. Why? Because the communists, like they did in countries like Cuba, go after the farmers and the property owners. So I'm not stupid enough to think that won't happen here. Uh, no matter how far out into the woods you get, the government will find you. Uh, and by that, I mean the new government, the new communist socialist government that will take over private property and specifically go after farms. But what do you know? These city people in America that are now communists, like the Antifa members, can't even grow a tomato plant. So I have a hard time imagining what they're going to do if they take over the farms. But that's also similar to what we saw in Cuba.
Hence, massive famine in every communist takeover. Um, so that's another example. Uh, what's another one? Uh, the Cultural Revolution in Communist China. You guys, this is a big one. I wish that we would see the stories of schools or officials or liberals and leftists encouraging pa- children to report their parents over political issues or COVID violations to the government or to their school and say, wow, this reminds me of the Cultural Revolution in China, where the radical left encouraged children to betray their family and report the wrong thinkers for daring to say that they disagreed with the government, for daring to say that they weren't happy, for daring to, I don't know, grow their own food secretly. Ooh, how dare you? That's a no-no in communism. Um, I wish that Americans said, hey, this reminds me of that. Uh, same thing with the elimination of information, with the uh, prosecution, or persecution of people that commit wrong thing. You are now eliminated from your position of power, from the public square. You're ostracized. And we call it cancel culture, but let's be real here. It's totalitarianism, and it's what happened in communist China. So I could go on with example after example of what's happening in America is a repeated pattern of behavior of every other socialist and communist country where this stuff has happened. Um, I could go on about it, but it's a lot more effective when you hear from somebody who actually experienced it. Hence why it is a passion of mine to find these stories and honor them and document them. That being said, if you guys want to get ready for the series to come out, um, subscribe to our YouTube, subscribe to our Rumble, and follow us on social media. It's Young Americans Against Socialism. Yes, I have a problem with the name. No, I'm not going to waste time right now and worry about the name. I'll focus on that another time. I'm young for a few more years, right? Uh, So so that's kind of that. And then also, if you guys email us at info at yaas.org, please email us if you are somebody who wants to be on an episode and share your story or if you know someone i am looking for rooftop koreans out there putting it out there i have a specific story i'd like to paint about the rooftop koreans the transition from communist korea the military training the men had once they immigrated to america they used that military training to protect their private property when the law enforcement abandoned them during the 1992 la riots and oh my gosh it is impossible for me to find a rooftop korean (laughs) if you are a rooftop korean alert alert please email info at yaas.org or if you know someone or maybe have you maybe you have like a, a father or a grandfather that was around then and maybe they aren't around anymore. If you want to maybe talk about it and share the family story, I would also love that. Um, again, info at yaas.org. Email us there. We would love to fly you out and have you to Dallas to film. Uh, so with that being said, I kind of want to close out the episode with an interesting tidbit. So relating to the fact that we don't learn enough about the 20th century and the horrors of communism uh, over that era, there's an interesting piece of history that's coming back to haunt us now, and that's the fact that good old Putin, um, well, Russia invaded Ukraine, and now a lot of people are acting like foreign policy experts, and a lot of people are acting like they know what's going on, even though, for the most part, it should be okay for more people to say, you know what, I just don't know what's going on right now. Let's wait for more information to come out and and watch this go. So that being said, there's an interesting tidbit that not a lot of people are aware of, and it's the fact that Putin used to be in the USSR's KGB. Not a good group. I'm not going to give you a history lesson on it, but I highly encourage you guys to learn a little bit about the USSR and the communist uh, 
bad guy group, let's call them that, that was the KGB that kind of did the bidding of the communist regime that just caused massive devastation, millions of deaths. Um, Putin was a part of it. So I found two interesting things that I wanted to read out to you. The first one's from the History Channel, and I know that I uh, kind of dug at the History Channel earlier. I, I do still like them, but it's important for us to see and notice the woke trends that are happening, like that distortion of the, the Boston massacre that they have on their website. But for the most part, uh, this is a good piece on Putin, and I'll link it in the, the description. But the History Channel said, During the Cold War, the Soviet Union stood for nearly half a century as one of the two loads of global power. When it dissolved in 1991, Russia found itself losing relevance. Russian President Vladimir Putin was a young KGB officer during this era, and the events of that time influenced many of the moves he made in the early years of his administration. With the goal of regaining the importance in the world the Soviet Union used to hold and restoring Russian pride. So, something that's going... You know, it's being overlooked right now is the fact that Putin wants to restore the glory that was in the USSR. It goes on to say the transition after the Soviet collapse proved brutal for most of Russia's population. And while Putin rose swiftly in the political ranks in its aftermath, he did have his own personal trauma associated with the fall. As a 37-year-old KGB lieutenant colonel stationed in the East German city of Dresden, Putin watched nervously as angry crowds stormed the city's huge Stasi compound in December 1989, just a few weeks after the fall of the Berlin Wall signaled the end of Soviet control in Europe. Overrunning the offices of the East German secret police, the crowds moved on to its inner sanctum, the KGB headquarters. Putin called for armed backup to protect the employees and the sensitive files hidden inside, but was told no one would come, no help would come. Moscow is silent, said the voice on the line. He had no choice but to go outside and lie to the crowds that he had heavily armed men waiting inside who would shoot anyone who tried to enter. The bluff worked, the mob dissipated, and the KGB's files on informers and agents remained safe. So that's just a little tidbit. He was there for the downfall of the USSR, and he has wanted to restore the glory that was lost there. Um, and, and that's something that should not be understated. There's also a Washington Post article from 2000 that I found. I love looking at these old articles, but there's one from 2000 talking about Putin when he's, he's on the up-and-coming uh, part of his leadership. And it says, Putin defends the Soviet-era intelligence service that he participated in to this day. In recent comments to a writer's group in Moscow, he even seemed to excuse its role in dictator Joseph Stalin's brutal purges, saying it, it would be insincere for him to assail the agency where he worked for so many years. Fiercely patriotic, Putin once said he could not read a book by a Soviet defector because, quote, I don't read books by people who have betrayed the motherland. So those are just two good examples, again, understanding the context of situations like Putin's role in the USSR and the distaste left in his mouth after experiencing the fall and then him wanting to redeem the pride uh, in his motherland that was lost just a handful of decades ago. Uh, it, it is all so important for us to understand. And unfortunately, history is not properly taught. And I think a part of that too is because we don't understand how horrible some of these things really were because we weren't properly taught them. Now we have a hard time connecting the dots to how truly terrible Putin not only is now, but has been and how terrible and, and serious this situation is moving forward on a global scale. Um, so 
I, I've talked about this a little bit. I'm not going to give you guys an analysis of Ukraine and Russia and everything that's happening and Poland's involvement and our involvement because I just don't want to speak on such a convoluted situation as if I'm some expert. I'm not, but from the angle of understanding the history of the situation, it's pretty serious to know that, that Putin has been dead set on doing something like this for quite some time. And then what are American troops doing right now? Uh, being recruited with videos about how they have lesbian moms and how we're fighting for social justice in the U.S. military. Um, but I'll do that on another episode. Actually, that's one of the future episodes that I'm going to be doing. Uh, Gorka, Sebastian Gorka, is one of my... He's kind of like a, a mentor at this point for me, but he's very, very sweet. And he sent me an article link, and he was like, we need to be talking about this. And it was the fact that a taxpayer-funded university that trains American military officers and international affairs leaders invited a lecturer who told them that to fight and win against communist China, we must embrace democratic socialism. So that's going to be an upcoming episode on the podcast. How could I not, you know? So, uh, that being said, I really appreciate you guys listening. Thanks for tuning in. And if you know anyone, please, we'd love to feature them on my nonprofits, uh, upcoming series. We already are trying to plan the guests for, uh, season two. And if you have a story or if you know someone with a story, email info at yas.org, Y-A-A-S dot org. Send us your information and we'll get you booked in Dallas. Also, if you guys want to support, please subscribe to the podcast, give it the five stars, share it with your friends, and of course say it was the best dang podcast you ever did here in the review. And if you want a Zegger's Freedom Flag, you can go to zegersfreedomflags.shop and always get a flag from my workshop. Thanks, you guys. I appreciate it. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.